0: Welcome to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall.
1: Welcome back, everybody. This is part two of my PM 2.5 conversation with Dan Dix and Rich Hamill. Let's get into it. We've got these modeling things to consider, some proactive steps that we can take. Dan mentioned a few items. There are some more proactive steps that might be taken around PM 2.5 that don't necessarily apply to PSD modeling, but could apply in other situations where perhaps some ambient monitoring might be something that could be assessed. Rich, I'll turn it over to you. Are there situations where ambient monitoring proactively might help in some of these situations? And could PSD be one of those times or is that impossible? That's a question a lot of people have. Let's talk about it.
2: Yeah, well, there are cases where states in particular have allowed monitoring as a replacement for modeling in cases where they make the determination that the modeling, because of whatever effects are in place, is conservative to the point that it's non-realistic. I've seen this happen in particular quite a bit with compressor stations where, now this isn't related to PM 2.5 specifically, but where they have problems modeling in the NO2 NACs, because these old compressor stations have relatively Short, very short stacks that might only be a foot or two higher than the building next to them. And the way that AirMod deals with downwash is just crippling to those sources, frankly. You'd never be able to model in. And then they oftentimes will do some test monitoring right in the same general vicinity, right along the fence line, and find that the model may be over predicting by a factor of five or 10. And just is not realistic because of the way the downwash algorithms work. So, in those cases, I have seen monitoring allowed as an alternative to modeling. In terms of PSD, that's less likely, I think, to be allowed just because of the way the requirements are you know, encapsulated into the rules and there's sort of this, a little bit less variability allowed there or options. So, I don't know that you're going to see that, although we did. This is, I wouldn't call it PSD, but in terms of NACS compliance, one of the aspects of the sulfur dioxide data requirements rule was if you couldn't model in, you could undergo a three-year monitoring program. So that was actually an option that was built right into the data requirements rule and was allowed. And I think in most of those cases, the findings were that the monitoring values were far lower than the modeled results.
1: I can't, do this particular podcast without mentioning plant wide applicability limits. I don't think we've mentioned them in the first 20 episodes, which is, I mean, shame on me. If John Egan were listening to these, he would <laughs> he wouldn't be happy. But I'll mention them here just briefly. We're talking about modeling and standards being tightened up and the difficulties of the process by which capital projects are, are evaluated creating hurdles sometimes overly conservative hurdles that aren't very realistic. So we can also look at innovative permitting approaches. Plant wide applicability limits allow a baseline actual emissions rate to be set for the entire facility. So essentially the entire facility would have a baseline emissions rate of PM 2.5. And then we add the 10 ton per year, very tight. We haven't talked about that yet. So 10 ton per year emissions increase, significant emission increase threshold for PM2.5, pretty tight. But we would add the 10 tons per year to that facility-wide emissions rate, and then the emissions across the entire facility are tracked moving forward relative to that PAL, plant-wide applicability limit, um, uh, that's been set. So that is a different way for a facility to implement projects. And those projects don't necessarily need to go through all of the typical PSD permitting obligations because you've already established this facility-wide cap. So you're sort of demonstrating on an ongoing basis that you're staying below that, and therefore you're not triggering into any of those requirements. So that is one way to potentially simplify things, particularly if there's facilities that have very high baseline emissions rates for whatever reason maybe different fuels had been burned in the past or things like that, where that baseline could be preserved. And then we're looking at the true environmental impact that's occurred from that facility historically to now. So it's it's a nice realistic way to look at emissions. It is, it does come with more tracking potentially. And there's you certainly don't want to go into a process like that lightly, but it's always something to consider. So I wanted to mention it. I think we'll end up having an episode about PALs specifically at at some point in time. And we'd be remiss. Dan was on the last couple episodes. We talked about environmental justice considerations. Right now, we're talking about fence line. We're talking about monitoring. So the, all of these things are tying together. Rich, I want to go to you. I know there's been EJ legislation that's had PM 2.5 in it and linked, sort of linked to it. So this is a very broad sort of category here. But any perspective from you on how PM 2.5 PM 2. specifically uh, is going to be linking up with environmental justice policy?
2: Yeah, well, possibly the most onerous um, proposed regulation in terms of how it impacts industry is the Clean Future Act, um, which has as one of the two criteria for determining whether a community is considered overburdened, um, a threshold for, am, uh, for annual PM 2.5 of eight micrograms per cubic meter. Now, if you go back to what Dan was saying, the, the national average is somewhere in the seven and a half, seven point eight 7.8 range right now. So if you put a threshold of eight in place, um, in such a rule, you're essentially saying that just about half of the United States would be considered an overburdened, uh, community, environmental justice community. And, um, We've seen we have a we've seen a map that essentially says that you know that would put about uh, probably 75 percent of the western United States and most of the industrial belt in the Midwest into this category of overburdened communities. Um, the other criteria being um, a, a cancer rate of 10 in a million or more, which then ends up covering a lot of the urban areas. So quite a bit of the United States becomes considered overburdened. Well, why is that important? Because according to this rule if you have a facility that, uh, you're trying to cite in an overburdened community, uh, a major permit cannot be issued in an overburdened community, uh, after, uh, the rule comes into place in theory in 2022. Um, and then to, to go even further as of 2025, no major permit could be renewed. So an existing facility would have, uh, Roadblocks to re- renewing their Title V or their operating permit, continuing to permit uh, continuing to operate. So that's a pretty onerous um, rule proposal that's out there now. Whether that would actually make it through in that format, uh, I think that's one that you would expect to see in litigation for many years to come. Um, but it's certainly out there and and has raised some eyes eyebrows.
1: And that was a legislative proposal, Rich, as opposed to a regulatory or EPA proposal.
2: Yes. Got
1: it. Anything else, Rich, on that front?
2: Oh, that's the main one. Um, you know, interesting, again, that they've selected eight, which is, you know, the uh, the ISR's lowest threshold uh, for potential NACs reconsideration as the number here. It seems uh, uh, you know rather, rather arbitrary, but uh, that's what's in the proposed rule.
1: Thanks, Rich. Dan, any further comments on Maybe just going even going back to our discussion the last time around monitoring and EJ any any additional thoughts you've had since then
0: something I'll just tie it all together even with your with your PAL um, update yeah. there as well just be aware that you know I've got a facility that has a PAL permit and because of environmental justice concerns they're still having us do NACs. Demonstration modeling as part of permanent applications, even though the facility has a PAL to address the environmental justice concerns in that area.
1: Good to know, and something to contemplate if that's going to be a requirement anyway. That might influence the uh, desire to move forward with that as an option. All right, let's move on to general topic number two. I think this will be a little. A little more of a brief topic, but I do want to make sure I cover it because it's a current event. Um, and this is the precursor guidance that I mentioned. Dan, I'm just going to turn it over to you here just to have you walk through what this guidance is and what it means. Is there anything folks should be doing to uh, think ahead on this? And Rich, will have you tack on with any other thoughts you have. Dan, take it away.
0: Sure. So EPA... In the last couple of weeks, it was uh, September 20th, issued their revised draft guidance for ozone and fine particulate matter permit modeling document. So, this document outlines how to address precursor impacts as a part of PSD permitting process and specifically PM2.5 precursors, NOx, and SO2. And ozone precursors being NOx uh, and VOC. And it's revised from a um, January, uh, or no, February 2020 version of this. And in the first version, uh, the guidance stated that you only had to evaluate those precursors for which you triggered PSD permitting review, you've triggered that major s- source threshold, the 40 tons or the, for SO2 NOx, 10 tons for PM2.5. So, for example, I triggered NOx PSD. I would only have to evaluate NOx as a precursor to PM2.5 and not have to evaluate uh, SO2. The updated guidance uh, is uh, less conservative in that if you trigger any one precursor pollutant As part of PSD review, you have to include all of the precursors in your analysis. So if I trigger NOx, I got to look at uh, NOx and SO2 as a precursor. Now, more importantly and more substantial is that in the introduction to the revised guidance, they stated that to address cumulative effects of precursors, and we've, we've heard this you know buzzword cumulative impacts a, a bunch recently, that not only do you have to address the PM2.5 precursors, but you need to address direct PM2.5 emissions. So what this potentially means is no longer can I utilize a PM2.5 PSD avoidance approach where I try to make sure I'm below that 10 ton threshold if I'm triggering for NOx and SO2, because if I trigger those two precursors pollutants, I got to address there's the precursor component and the direct pm 2.5 emission component. So this could be a way that uh, you're gonna need to do pm 2.5 uh, dispersion modeling with AirMod, even though you don't trigger uh, PSD permitting for it. It's out for draft. Uh, EPA right now is accepting comments on it uh, through November 19th. So right now is, uh, you know, people have the ability to submit comments uh, to uh, address this really, you know, it's going to be an impactful change uh, in evaluating precursor emissions.
1: Dan, does it apply just to the PM 2.5 family of precursors and not to the Ozone family. I, what I'm trying to think about is if I'm in for NOx, let's say, am I all of a sudden in for SO2 and PM 2.5 and VOC? Yes. Okay. So it covers everything. So NOx
0: is the key one. Like if you're in for NOx, you're kind of in for everything. You're in. You're yeah. in two different in two buckets. Then yeah.
1: So we have guidance that creates potentially an avenue for a what would typically be a one pollutant PSD assessment to turn into a four. Yes. pollutant PSD assessment. How would state agencies, how does this fit in? And we might be getting into things that even we can't answer yet, but I'll talk about them anyway. How does this fit in with state agencies that have programs? Is this something that state agencies from your perspective would push back on?
0: Could they push back on it?
1: And I'll go to either of you for this, Dan, then Rich.
0: Yeah, I mean it's draft guidance. So I think how state agencies utilize this guidance is going to vary from agency to agency. So that said, some of the guidance that we rely on for modeling was never finalized and we right. you know it's it's draft guidance that state agencies are using. But because it's draft, that's where some state agencies do push back on utilizing it. Although a shift with these guidance documents in the last couple of years is they are going out for public comment. In the past, they did not. And I believe it's an approach that they have gone through this process to go out for public comment. And I would expect maybe that this one does get finalized as final guidance.
1: EPA can be more confident when they go out to the agencies and other stakeholders Mm -hmm. when they've gone through a public comment process.
0: Yeah, that's exactly it.
1: It gives it a little more oomph than when the guidance becomes finalized. Okay, so this is – it's still draft, but it's – the information in it is significant and should be discussed with the state agency immediately upon even thinking about entering into any project that would involve modeling. Rich, any – Final thoughts on this one? Any other comments?
2: No, I mean, some states already have a built-in secondary Mm -hmm. PM2.5 and ozone assessment in their guidance. So I I would guess Texas, I'm thinking of, has it pretty well documented in their own guidance. They would probably stay with that and maybe consider a a review. No, I I mean, I think to me the biggest ramification is the potential to have to model direct PM2.5 when you weren't planning on it. If you have to consider both precursors, and one of them was for a pollutant that was below the significant emission rate in the first place, it's probably not going to have enough quantity to actually affect your analysis of secondary formation. But if you suddenly have to model PM 2.5, if your project has even a small amount of emissions, but they happen to be in one of these types of sources that tends to result in very conservative modeling results, and it happens to be right next to the fence line. You could do that modeling, trip the sill, exceed the sill, and suddenly be required to do a cumulative modeling analysis of your entire facility as well as everything around it and ambient background, which, by the way, might be getting lower, so that could be a problem. So, you know, there's – it probably wouldn't happen often, but I could see that creating some big problems
1: for some very specific scenarios. In a way, this all does fit together because you think about the direction that we're headed – and it all ties together in that we've got a potentially tightened PM 2.5 standard that's more difficult to model against using the tools that we have. And then you potentially have, we'll see, this guidance is draft, but you potentially have additional pathways to the requirement to conduct PM 2.5 modeling. So you've got these two things going on that, especially when put together, Will certainly increase the number of situations that have to be looked at pretty carefully. So these are all proactive considerations to make, particularly when we've got big projects coming up down the pike. Dan and Rich, we covered a lot. Any final comments or thoughts on PM 2.5 in general? Dan, I'll go to you.
0: I think just plan early and plan ahead is becoming more and more important. Like you mentioned, Colin, you know see what you can be doing now, you know, and bring projects up. If you have the ability to go through permitting sooner rather than later, you could go through with the existing standard and not a reduced standard. Rich, any final words?
1: Well,
2: I think, you know, again, the, the public comment period is open now, so you know if it's appropriate you should consider making comment on that also we didn't mention but epa is holding a webinar on october 14th to discuss that guidance so you know that's something that if you want to get a better understanding of what they're requiring you might want to attend that it's a free webinar open to open to the public other than that nothing else to add um, beyond um, what dan's already said
1: very good point rich thanks dan Thanks, Rich. Always appreciate it, guys.
0: You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company.